I'll write firstly without a microphone, or would it be preferable to have one? Okay. Okay, sure. Uh, it's lovely to be back uh, in Oxford. Uh, as Irene mentioned, I did my BCL at UNIV just across the road, so it's, it's really uh, delightful to be back. I do remember it being a little bit sunnier the last time I was here, but that might have just been the optimism of youth, I'm not sure. Um, so today I want to talk about uh, the relationship between international law and domestic law but in particular in relation to the question of treaty withdrawal. Our recent controversies have called on us to reflect on and to perhaps to reconsider who has the capacity to speak for the state in the international legal system. Do we give absolute authority to the executive or do other branches of government or perhaps populaces directly have a role to play in that question? And treaty withdrawal is an increasingly important, and I think interesting, hopefully you think so too, a context in which to explore these and other questions related to the relationship between international and domestic law. And the particular question I want to speak about today is this. If a state withdraws from a treaty in a manner that violates its own domestic law, for instance, if the executive fails to obtain constitutionally required legislative approval of treaty withdrawal, uh, will this withdrawal nonetheless take effect in international law? We know that a violation of domestic law when a state joins a treaty can lead to the invalidation of this act in the international legal sphere. But it is unsettled in international law whether a similar violation when a state exits a treaty can lead to the international invalidity of that act. And as I'm sure many of you in the room appreciate, this question is of growing widespread and topical importance. It's of course arisen in relation uh, to Brexit, the UK's exit from the European Union, but also in relation to South Africa's thus far failed departure from the International Criminal Court, um, and also the US's threatened renunciation of various treaty regimes, including the Paris Accord. So my presentation today will be uh, based on a recent paper that I published in the European Journal of International Law um, and will proceed in three parts. First, I'll discuss the different domestic public law approaches to treaty withdrawal with reference in particular to those three case studies that I mentioned. Second, I'll consider whether international law gives a role to those domestic law requirements when assessing the legality of a state's treaty withdrawal. And I'll compare and contrast the international law rules concerning the state's joining of treaties with those concerning treaty exit. And I'll conclude by proposing that international law rules on joining treaties should be applied by analogy to the context of treaty exit, such that a manifest violation of domestic law may vitiate a state's treaty withdrawal in international law. And in this way, domestic legal developments, extending democratic principles and separation of powers controls to treaty withdrawal decisions may be given international legal force. So I'll begin, begin then by briefly addressing the different domestic constitutional approaches that are taken to treaty withdrawal. All states, by virtue of their fundamental right to sovereign equality, bear treaty-making capacity, which they can exercise as they wish to enter into treaty obligations with other states, or indeed to end those treaty obligations. 
as Sir, Humphrey, uh, as Sir Humphrey Waldo wrote in his second report on the Law of Treaties for the International Law Commission, uh, the ILC, during the drafting of the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties, he wrote, the power to annul, terminate, withdraw from, or suspend treaties, no less than the power to conclude treaties, forms part of the treaty-making power of the state. And equally, the state's determination of who can express its will in relation to treaty membership is also an expression of the state sovereignty protected within its domestic jurisdiction. As in the case of becoming a party to treaties, different states adopt varying approaches to their constitutional regulation of the power to withdraw from treaties. However, while the power to join treaties is usually expressly regulated in the state's constitution, the power to withdraw is often left unaddressed. A recent study found that out of 190 constitutions surveyed, only 43 had expressed regulation of treaty exit, whereas 168 had expressed rules on signing or ratifying treaties. So this lack of express regulation has meant that courts are increasingly charged with clarifying the domestic law requirements for treaty withdrawal. And that, of course, is precisely what has occurred in relation to those case studies that I've mentioned. So in both the United Kingdom and in South Africa, domestic courts were recently faced with the same question. Essentially, can the executive withdraw from an international treaty which had been ratified and domesticated by parliament but without parliamentary approval of withdrawal. In the UK, of course, this arose in relation to the executive's declared intention to trigger Article 50 of the European Union Treaty, which is the withdrawal provision of the treaty, in case there's anyone who hasn't been reading the news for about three years now. Uh, so the court in the UK had the opportunity to address the legality of the treaty withdrawal prospectively before the executive actually triggered Article 50. In South Africa, the question arose after the executive had triggered Article 127 of the Rome Statute, uh, which would end South Africa's membership in the International Criminal Court uh, after the 12-month notice period prescribed in the Rome Statute. So in contrast to the UK, the South African court had to address the legality of South Africa's withdrawal from the ICC after the withdrawal provision was triggered, but before it took effect in international law. Neither country has expressed regulation of treaty withdrawal in its constitution or in domestic legislation, and in neither country had judicial attention previously been given to the question. Nonetheless, both the UK Supreme Court in Miller No. 1 uh, and the South African High Court in the Democratic Alliance case held that the executive, the executive first had to obtain parliamentary approval before the executive could withdraw the state from the treaty in question according to domestic law. However, there are significant differences between the approaches taken to the two courts. <coughs> the South African court's reasoning is considerably wider than that of the UK Supreme Court in Miller No. 1. In the UK Supreme Court, it was held that withdrawal from the EU required parliamentary approval due to the significant constitutional change that would result, namely eliminating EU law as a source of domestic UK law and negating certain individual rights vested in domestic law 
by virtue of EU law. Since Parliament alone could make domestic law, Parliament alone could approve these changes to domestic law. The South African decision, by contrast, held that any treaty that was subject to parliamentary ratification required parliamentary approval for withdrawal. Whether or not that treaty exit would result in a change to South African domestic law. Similar debates have also arisen in the United States of America uh, concerning the executive's declared intention to withdraw from the Paris Agreement and potentially other treaties as well. There's ongoing controversy as to whether President Trump has the domestic power to withdraw unilaterally from these or other treaties, or whether consent of Senate or Congress is needed. However, in the United States, following the Goldwater and Carter case, US domestic courts have held that this is a non-justiciable political question. So these case studies, I think, illustrate that domestic requirements on treaty withdrawal are playing an important role in states' decisions about their international engagements, despite the absence of codified rules on the subject in all three of these jurisdictions. And domestic courts are increasingly asserting a key role for legislative and judicial branches in treaty withdrawal, limiting the executive's authority to decide unilaterally whether the state will remain a party to international treaties. And this is commonly justified, as in the Miller No. 1 and the Democratic Alliance decisions, on the basis of protecting legislative autonomy and the separation of powers, and so also a means for democratic participation in decisions on the state's treaty commitments. However, the judicial decisions also demonstrate that states, even within the common law family, take divergent approaches to the domestic legal requirements on treaty withdrawal, and that these requirements, even within a single state, will often vary depending on a number of factors, including the nature of the treaty, the effect that withdrawal will have on domestic law, and also the procedure followed when joining the treaty in question. In addition, the South African example has raised the possibility of substantive Bill of Rights challenges to treaty withdrawal on the basis of protection of constitutional rights. And that's an issue I'm happy to talk about more in questions if there's interest on that. As a result, it will often be difficult to predict what will be constitutionally required in individual cases of treaty withdrawal, particularly given the judicial basis of the development of these rules. And a last point that I think is interesting to note about these domestic court decisions is that these courts do not consider the consequences of a domestic finding of invalidity for the international legal effectiveness of treaty withdrawal. Neither the UK Supreme Court nor the South African High Court considered whether their state would have left validly under international law after the finding of domestic unconstitutionality. So what happens then if a state withdraws from an international treaty in a manner that complies with the applicable international legal requirements, but violates these domestic requirements on treaty withdrawal? For instance, if the UK had gone ahead to pull out of the EU without first seeking parliamentary approval, or if the South African executive had refused to revoke its instrument of withdrawal from the ICC, would the UK and South Africa still 
at some point, perhaps in the future, cease to be bound by the treaties in question. Now, the drafters of the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties, or the VCLT, uh, discussed at quite a bit of length which body of law, domestic or international, determines who can effectively exercise the state's treaty-making capacity in, in the international sphere. And strong disagreement arose between those who suggested that international legal authority was vested solely in the executive, regardless of domestic constitutional rules, and those who insisted that international law has to protect domestic and particularly democratic allocation of international treaty-making authority. However, the discussion during the drafting of the VCLT only addressed this question in relation to becoming a party to a treaty, neglecting the context of treaty exit. The proper relationship between international and domestic legal requirements when joining a treaty had been the subject of debate and disagreement for many years, even before the discussions uh, during the drafting of the VCLT. And indeed, Judge Marone once described this in the British Yearbook of International Law um, as amongst the most difficult questions in international law. So this debate became acute during the more than two decade period of the drafting of the VCLT, in which the views of the main rival theories were expressed in stark opposition to each other. On the one hand, we had those supporting the constitutionalist theory, which favors a determinative role for domestic law in allocating treaty-making authority. On the other hand, you had a number of drafters who supported the internationalist theory, which insists that international law itself allocates that treaty-making authority. And indeed, the four successive special rapporteurs of the International Law Commission uh, each proposed fundamentally different approaches to this one question. James Brierley supported a strict constitutionalist approach. Hirsch Lauderpacht suggested a qualified constitutionalist approach. Uh, Sir Gerald Fitzmaurice's proposals were purely internationalist. And the final formulation proposed by Sir Humphrey Waldock was one that favored the internationalist view, uh, but with important exceptions built into it. Now, underlying these approaches to the allocation of treaty-making authority uh, are two key normative principles or imperatives that the VCLT drafters thought that international law had to balance effectively. On the one hand was the principle of the security and efficiency of treaties, and on the other hand was the principle of state sovereignty. So the principle of treaty security emphasizes the need for clarity in international law requirements for treaty making so that states may know when they have undertaken binding treaty commitments and so that other states' parties can know when a new state has joined the treaty regime. As you can appreciate, treaty security therefore is jeopardized if parties can't rely on the authority of other states' representatives to represent their state. And if they have to, as Hirschlauderpacht put it, probe into the often uncertain and obscure provisions of constitutional law of the other contracting party or parties on the subject. So the internationalist approach then prioritizes the principle of treaty security, favoring a uniform set of rules being established in international law to determine when a state has validly joined an international treaty. 
The sovereignty principle, meanwhile, requires respect for the state's internal constitutional allocation of treaty-making authority. And, as put by Lauterpacht, forbids the acceptance of the view that a state may become bound by acts for which there is no warrant or authority in its own law. The constitutionalist approach then prioritizes the sovereignty principle, such that only domestic law can determine which state representative has the authority to bind the state to international treaty obligations. And as a result, if an actor other than one empowered by domestic law attempts to undertake international law obligations on behalf of the state, this simply is of no legal effect because that actor has no authority to represent their state. As a result, according to the constitutionalist approach, rules of internal law are argued to be incorporated into the international law of treaties by renvoi. For international law to give absolute authority to the executive in treaty making, regardless of the internal allocation of authority, would be, again in Hirschlauterpacht's words, totally out of harmony with modern conceptions of representative government and principles of democracy. And furthermore, this constitutionalist approach supports the international rule of law by holding the state to its own internal procedures and requiring other states to respect those procedures as well. So how was this debate resolved in relation to the VCLT? Well, in the context of joining treaties, the VCLT ultimately resolved the question uh, in, uh, on balance in favor of the principle of treaty security, with a limited exception to acknowledge the importance of state sovereignty, adopting what I think is fair to describe as a qualified or a modified internationalist approach. So according to the VCLT, the state's executive is given ostensible authority under international law to bind its state to treaties in Article 7, regardless of the rules of domestic law of the state. However, an important exception is also established in relation to consent to join a treaty expressed by the state in manifest violation of a rule of its internal law of fundamental importance. According to Article 46 of the VCLT, such a manifest violation makes the state's consent voidable under international law. So we can see that there are two aspects to this exception. First, there has to be a violation of a rule of fundamental importance. The International Court of Justice, for instance, in the Cameroon and Nigeria decision, um, has held that this requirement of legislative approval of treaty ratification qualifies as such a rule of fundamental importance. And of course, these are exactly the type of rules in question in relation to all of our case studies. Does legislative approval need to be given for treaty withdrawal? Second, the violation has to be manifest in the sense set out in the VCLT. And the VCLT says that that means that the violation must be objectively evident to any state acting in good faith and in compliance with normal practice. As a result, this exception will only apply if other states knew or ought to have known of the non-compliance with domestic requirements. And it's clear that this is quite a demanding threshold to meet, especially given that the International Court of Justice has said that states are not generally under a duty to know the domestic law of their treaty partners. 
In practice, then, this manifest violation exception will only apply if other states had been given a direct warning about the rule of domestic law being violated, or if that rule was somehow well publicized. Nonetheless, despite this being quite a challenging threshold to meet, this manifest violation exception in Article 46 does give international legal force to domestic law checks on the executive's power to join treaties, albeit in a limited fashion. However, regarding leaving treaties or treaty exit, the VCLT rules give power to the executive to withdraw their state from a treaty in Article 67 of the VCLT with no equivalent of the manifest violation exception, nor indeed any other reference to the domestic legal allocation of treaty withdrawal authority. In stark contrast to the nearly 20 year debate on this question in the rules on joining treaties, the issue in relation to treaty exit was only given very brief consideration during the drafting of the VCLT. And in fact, I could only find one very brief instance in which the role of domestic rules in the international validity of treaty exit was raised in the ILC's discussions. At one point, Rosen suggested that there should be one single provision merging the authority to join and to leave treaties, saying that the very same questions applied to both issues. However, Sir Humphrey Waldock replied that the issue, and I quote, would require some thought. A classic response when one doesn't know the answer to a difficult question. And indeed, no further consideration was given to the matter, either during the drafting of the VCLT or later during the state's debate on this topic. So it appears that prima facie, while the executive is given a limited authority to join treaties on behalf of their state, it's given an absolute authority to exit, unlimited by any domestic law, legislative or judicial checks on this power in the state's constitution. And this, of course, would allow the executive uh, simply to ignore any domestic law limits on their treaty withdrawal powers when acting in the international sphere. And as a result, the recent landmark judgments in the UK and in South Africa, for instance, establishing parliamentary control over the power of treaty withdrawal would have no effect on the, their executive's treaty withdrawal powers in international law. So my argument is that this failure to address the role of domestic constitutional rules in the context of treaty exit constitutes a clear lacuna in the law, and that we can fill it by applying the manifest violation exception in Article 46 analogically from the context of joining treaties. And I think there is, in fact, a small amount of support in the travaux preparatoire that we can interpret as supportive of such an application. Uh, in its commentary on the final draft articles, the ILC stated that the rule concerning evidence of authority to denounce or terminate treaties should be interpreted analogously to the rule governing full powers to express consent of a state to be bound by a treaty. And so I argue then that according to the ILC's understanding, limitations on that authority to bind the state to a treaty should also apply analogously to the power to denounce or terminate a treaty. 
And these limitations, of course, would include the Article 46 manifest violation exception. Now, this proposed analogical application is also, I argue, uh, supported by the normative principles underlying the law on treaty consent. And remember, those principles were those of state sovereignty and treaty security. Uh, first, in terms of the sovereignty principle, it's apparent that the importance of respecting the state's sovereign right to allocate treaty-making competence applies equally to the acts of joining and leaving treaties. I've already noted that the acts of joining and withdrawing from treaties are both aspects of the state's treaty-making capacity. And indeed, the decisions to join and leave a treaty are simply two parts of the same question. Does the state wish to be a party to the treaty? So it's incoherent then to recognize a role for domestic law in the determination of authority when a state exercises its treaty-making capacity to become a party to a treaty, but simply to ignore domestic law when exercising the same capacity to withdraw. Furthermore, recent episodes, and I'm thinking particularly of the Brexit campaign in the UK, demonstrate that national populaces increasingly view treaty withdrawal decisions as equally central to their national sovereignty as joining treaties. And I think there are good reasons for this. International treaties are increasingly uh, wide in terms of their scope and ambition, and the uh, degree to which international treaties, and particularly constituent instruments of international organizations, um, delve into areas that we used to consider issues to be within the core domain reserve of the state in terms of the structure of the national economy, rules on immigration, and national prosecutorial policies. So I don't think that it's incorrect to say that these treaties do have a considerable impact on the shape and scope of national sovereignty. Furthermore, when joining treaties, there are additional procedural mechanisms that protect the state's domestic allocation of treaty-making power on top of the manifest violation exception. Many treaties, particularly those with onerous requirements, are subject to ratification or to other procedural requirements that ensure or at least encourage the executive to obtain domestic approval when they join a treaty. And it was noted by Waldock and others during the drafting of the VCLT that these procedural mechanisms were an important source of protection for state sovereignty, and as a result, a significant consideration in the drafter's decision to codify the executive's ostensible authority to enter into international treaties. In the context of treaty withdrawal, these additional sovereignty-friendly procedures aren't provided. The closest equivalent, I think, are the waiting periods, such as the 12-month notice period in Article 127 of the Rome Statute and the prima facie two-year but seemingly interminable withdrawal period in Article 50 of the European Union Treaty. However, while these uh, withdrawal periods in the treaties have, pro have provided an opportunity for domestic contestation of treaty withdrawal, they in fact don't prescribe any type of additional domestic approval that's needed for withdrawal to take effect internationally. So particularly in light of the absence of these alternative mechanisms, 
analogous extension of the manifest violation exception is, I argue, an appropriate manner for international law to protect the principle of state sovereignty. But what about the principle of treaty security? We saw that in relation to joining a treaty, it was in fact this principle that was favored on balance in the VCLT rules. However, I suggest that in the context of exiting treaties, the principle of treaty security is not best served by giving absolute treaty withdrawal power to the executive in international law. An important aspect of the principle of treaty security is that it protects international law's preference for states to become and remain bound by the treaties that they've joined. And this is clearly reflected throughout the travaux preparatoire of the VCLT, for instance, in the repeated arguments that we had to define the right to withdraw from treaties narrowly, um, and also in other aspects of the law of treaties, such as the provision for reservations to treaties, encouraging states to join treaties even at the cost of the total integrity of the treaty regime. Recognizing the requirement to comply with domestic law uh, when withdrawing from treaties favors this aspect of the principle of treaty security. If international law requires states to act compatibly with their co constitutional requirements when exiting treaties, uh, this operates as an additional barrier to withdrawal. The failure to comply with which would mean that a state may remain bound by the treaty in question, protecting the security of the treaty regime. In the context of joining a treaty, in contrast, the requirement to comply with domestic law operates as a barrier to the state being bound by the treaty in the first place, which undermines treaty security. And this is a significant way in which the two contexts uh, diverge. In considering the principles underlying treaty consent then, uh, the balance between treaty security and sovereignty is most appropriately struck in the same way in relation to all exercises of the state's treaty-making capacity. As I've already noted, states generally do have to be able to rely on the, valid uh, the validity of acts done by foreign state representatives who have ostensible authority. As a result, not all violations of domestic law should invalidate treaty withdrawal, just as they don't invalidate the act of joining a treaty. <coughs> Instead, international law should restrict the potential invalidation of treaty withdrawal to instances when it's reasonable to expect other state parties to have known there was a violation of an important rule of domestic law. And this analogical application of the manifest violation exception balances the relevant principles while also recognizing the value in adopting a coherent approach to treaty capacity, which in itself, I think, will benefit treaty security and stability. However, analogical application does not necessarily entail identical application in the two contexts. And I do think that there are relevant differences between the contexts of entering and exiting treaties that will modify not the content of the exception, but how the exception will apply in relation to these two acts. <coughs> Since the manifest violation exception um, relies, as we've said, on a standard of normal practice, it naturally applies in a flexible manner 
depending on the particular case, including the type of treaty that we're dealing with and the circumstances in which withdrawal is being executed by the state. <coughs> that means that there may be instances where it is in fact easier to prove a manifest violation in the case of treaty exit than in the case of treaty entry. In particular, I would argue that where a treaty depends heavily on domestic implementation or where the loss of an individual member state would have a significant impact on the interests of other <coughs> treaty parties, as in the UK's withdrawal from the EU, it would be reasonable to expect the other state parties to examine domestic legality of the state's withdrawal alongside the applicable international law requirements. In such cases, then, a violation of domestic law would be objectively evident to other state parties. Of course, the other elements of the manifest violation exception would continue to apply to the rules on treaty withdrawal. And the violation would still have to be of a domestic rule of fundamental importance, and the content of the rule would still need to be clear at the time of the purported violation. That is when the state sought to withdraw from the treaty. So if we were to apply this manifest violation exception to the context of leaving treaties, how would this apply in our <coughs> case studies? Well, in my view, it's only in the case of the Brexit decision that I think it might have had an impact. Had the UK executive gone ahead and triggered Article 50 without parliamentary approval, despite the decision in Miller No. 1, um, I argue this would have been a manifest violation of a rule of fundamental importance. As I've already noted, rules concerning the requirement of parliamentary involvement in treaty making have been held by the ICJ to be rules of fundamental importance, which are subject to the Article 46 uh, exception. In addition, uh, the domestic rule in question was perhaps unprecedentedly well publicized at the time of the purported withdrawal. And in addition, the UK's withdrawal has very significant implications for the other EU member states. As a result, in my view, uh, the violation of UK domestic law would have been objectively evident to other EU member states, acting in good faith according to normal practice. So had the UK executive proceeded without parliamentary approval, if we applied the manifest violation exception to the context of treaty withdrawal, this withdrawal would have been voidable under international law. Of course, as it was, parliamentary approval was obtained prior to withdrawal uh, in the European Union Notification of Withdrawal Act, and so the possible manifest violation in that case uh, was avoided. In the, in the South African and American contexts, I'm not convinced uh, that this is the case there. Uh, the domestic constitutional rules at the time of withdrawal, uh, in my view, were not sufficiently clear to constitute a possible manifest violation. So it's apparent then that analogical application of the manifest violation exception would not amount to the whole-scale replacement of international rules on treaty withdrawal which with each individual state's domestic law rules. Instead, this rule would merely operate to give an appropriate scope to domestic law rules, while nonetheless generally giving deference to the executive's international legal authority to end the state's treaty commitments. 
And I do hope um, that that caveat would calm the sensibilities of any hardcore internationalists uh, that may be in the room. So to conclude, I do think that there's scope for such an analogical application of this manifest violation principle. And this wouldn't mean that domestic law necessarily plays an identical role in the international validity of states' consent to join and leave treaties. However, uh, to maintain that violations of important rules of domestic law are simply irrelevant to the international effectiveness of states' treaty exit is, to repeat the already quoted words of Hirschlauderpacht, totally out of harmony with modern conceptions of representative government and principles of democracy. Um, and surely this is even more pertinent today than when he wrote those words in 1953. Uh, thank you very much for your attention. Thank you.